Hello and welcome to Misty 101 podcast. Ex-Chelsea and Man United boss Jose Mourinho appears to make dig at foreign ownership of his former clubs in first Roma interview. New Roma boss Jose Mourinho has appeared to take a swipe at the foreign ownership of his previous clubs, which include Chelsea and Manchester United, while claiming he is a much better coach than he was when he left Italy. The Portuguese joined the Serie A Giants in May after being sacked by English Premier League Spurs and has finally touching down to started in the Italian capital for next season before the weekend. Speaking at length publicly with his new employers for the first time, the notoriously provocative coach touched on a number of hot topics with comments that may ruffle a few feathers. Since the first day, Mourinho answered, when asked if he had been excited to take over the reins at Roma. And I really mean it, since the first day. Since the first day I met the owners and, general manager, Tiago Pinto, I had immediately this very positive feeling. And that means a lot to me. So that enthusiasm is based on, of course, the conversations we had, the ideas we exchanged, but also on something I value a lot, which is the human feelings. Empathy. Since day one, I have been looking forward to the real day one, which is the first day that I arrive in Rome. As he did at Manchester United, Mourinho will work with American billionaires at Roma in the form of club owners Ryan and Dan Friedkin, of the Friedkin Group. Pushed into elaborating on whether it had been human feelings that persuaded him to accept Roma's offer, Mourinho said that it was also ideas, information and questions and answers from both sides that were influential. I left our initial conversation with the feeling that this is not the Friedkin's project, this is not a Jose Mourinho project, this is not a Tiago Pinto project, this is an As Roma project. That was my feeling, and that is something that I was really impressed about. As you know, during my career I have had different experiences and I have worked with clubs in similar situations, with let's say a foreign ownership, and I was impressed by the fact that Mr. Friedkin and his son, Ryan, were always speaking about the Roma fans, he added, in what could be taken as a subtle nod to other past owners at his former clubs, such as the Glazers at Manchester United and Roman Abramovich at Chelsea. They were not speaking about themselves, they were not speaking about their project, they were speaking about the fans. On so many occasions, you feel that the owners speak about the clubs like their clubs, which, in reality, by one point of view is true, but I found them speaking about the club for the Romanisti, and it is for them that we want to make it. And that was very, very important for me because, of course, I know the reality. After his car mobbed on arrival in a hero's welcome, Mourinho said, I know the fans, I know the passion, and, since day one, I felt the project is, if you feel it as a project of, I am going to arrive tomorrow and win the day after tomorrow, then that is not a project. But this is a project where the owners want to leave a legacy, they want to do something important for the club in a very sustainable way. Creating the basis for success. 
hopefully that success arrives with me, because the contract is a three-year contract, or the first contract is, and maybe there will be a second one day. So I hope that the results of our work will come during my time. I really want that to happen. But let's go step by step. I am very happy to belong to this project, which, I repeat, is not anyone's project, but is the AS Roma project. After rising to prominence at Porto, Mourinho's next big job after Chelsea was at Roma's rivals, Inter Milan, where he won a first-ever Italian treble including the Champions League. Despite his struggles of the last few years, including doomed short stints at United and Tottenham, suggesting otherwise, Mourinho boldly claimed that he is a much better manager than that success-soaked period at the turn of the 2010s. I am serious, Mourinho stressed. I am much better now, because I think this is a job where experience means a lot. Experience, it looks like everything becomes deja vu because you go through so many experiences. Since I left Italy, I went to Real Madrid, which was an incredible experience, and I reached my dream of winning in Italy, England and Spain. Then back to England, which is my family base, and where I wanted to return. You know, I have even had the extreme experience of taking a team to a final and not playing the final, which is something that I thought would never happen in my career. And it happened, he highlighted, of being dismissed by Spurs before they lost last season's League Cup final to Manchester City. So, with so many experiences, and learning in the good moments and the bad moments, I am much more prepared now than I was. It is the kind of job where you can only get better until the day where you lose your motivation. That is the only thing that can make a football coach decide to stop, or to stop learning. That is not my case, very far from it, I am still learning every day, so I think I am much better. It is one thing to come to a country for the first time and you arrive at level zero and you have everything to learn about it. In my case, that's not the case. I know Italy as a country, I know Italy as a football culture, I know something about Roma because in my time in Italy, Roma was the real rival. It was the team close to us fighting for the titles. So I think I am in a better position now than I was when I landed in Italy for the first time back in 2008, he insisted. Ready to get stuck into his new assignment, Mourinho now has the tall order on his hands of knocking defending champions Inter off their perch, although bitter rival Antonio Conte won't be in the opposite dugout after leaving shortly after the title was secured following a row over transfer policy. Roma finished a modest seventh in Serie A last season, trailing Inter by a chasmic 29 points. After initial confusion, Israeli-operated ship confirmed to have been attacked off the coast of Oman. A merchant vessel, operated by the company of Israeli billionaire, Aalofa, has been attacked off the coast of Oman in the Arabian Sea. The incident is currently under investigation. 
The British military's United Kingdom Maritime Trade Operations UKMTO, was first to report the attack, saying that it occurred late on Thursday, northeast of the Omani island of Masira, some 300 kilometres southeast of the country's capital. In a brief statement, UKMTO added that it was looking into the details of the incident, only saying that it wasn't related to piracy. According to AP, the UK Ministry of Defence then announced that the affected vessel was Israeli-owned, but didn't reveal its name or any further details. London-based Zodiac Management, which is part of the Zodiac Group of Israeli shipping and real estate tycoon Aalofa, later confirmed that one of its ships, product tanker Mercer Street, has been attacked off the coast of Oman. However, the company clarified that it didn't own the vessel, but only operated it. Mercer Street had been traveling under the Liberian flag and has a Japanese owner, it added. Zodiac management said that it was also investigating the incident, while keeping in touch with UKMTO and other relevant agencies. Neither Israeli nor Omani authorities have yet officially commented on the attack. The U.S. Navy's Fifth Fleet, which carries out patrol missions in the Middle Eastern waters, didn't immediately respond to a request for comment when approached by AP. The story gained attention as attacks on Israeli and Iranian-owned vessels have occurred frequently since the start of the year, with the two arch-rivals blaming each other for those incidents. Israeli media have described it as shadow war between the countries. In early July, a merchant ship, which used to be under Israeli ownership, caught fire after being hit by an unknown weapon in the northern Indian Ocean. A month earlier, the Iranian training and logistics vessel, Iris Karg, the largest in country's navy, sank in the Gulf of Oman as a result of major blaze aboard. More such incidents happened this year, but in all of these the affected vessels avoided serious damage and could resume operations after repairs. In March, a report by the Wall Street Journal claimed Israel used naval mines to bomb at least a dozen ships carrying Iranian oil in the Red Sea and other parts of the region over the past two years. The piece, which cited unnamed U.S. and regional officials, said that the Jewish state acted out of fear that Tehran was using oil money to fund extremism in the Middle East. Israel blames Iran for attack on tanker off Oman that killed two. A Briton and a Romanian were killed when an Israeli-managed petroleum product tanker came under attack on Thursday off the coast of Oman, the company said on Friday, in an incident that Israel's foreign minister blamed on Iran and said deserved a harsh response. There were varying explanations for what happened to the Mercer Street, a Liberian-flagged, Japanese-owned ship, with Israeli-owned Zodiac Maritime describing the incident as suspected piracy and a source at the Oman Maritime Security Center as an accident that occurred outside Omani territorial waters. 
Iran and Israel have traded accusations of attacking each other's vessels in recent months and Israeli Foreign Minister Yair Lapid said he had told Britain's Foreign Secretary of the need for a tough response to the incident in which two crew members, one British and the other Romanian, were killed. Iran is not just an Israeli problem, but an exporter of terrorism, destruction and instability that harms us all. The world must not be silent in the face of Iranian terrorism that also harms freedom of shipping, Lapid said in a statement. U.S. and European sources familiar with intelligence reporting said Iran was their leading suspect for the incident, which a U.S. defense official said appeared to have been carried out by a drone, but stressed the governments were seeking conclusive evidence. Al-Alam TV, the Iranian government's Arabic-language television network, cited unnamed sources as saying the attack on the ship came in response to a suspected, unspecified Israeli attack on Dabar Airport in Syria. There was no immediate official reaction from Iran to the accusation that it may have been responsible. Israeli news website Enet said the assessment in Israel was that there were two attacks on the ship, spaced several hours apart. The first caused no damage, and the second hit the bridge, causing the casualties. It quoted an unnamed Israeli official as saying, Israel will find it hard to turn a blind eye to the attack. Tensions have risen in the Gulf region since the United States reimposed sanctions on Iran in 2018 after then-President Donald Trump withdrew Washington from Tehran's 2015 nuclear deal with major powers. The United States regards the possibility of Iran obtaining nuclear arms, an ambition Tehran denies, as a direct threat to its ally Israel. The United Kingdom Maritime Trade Operations UKMTO, which provides maritime security information, said the attack was not piracy. The vessel was about 152 nautical miles 280 kilometers northeast of the Omani port of Duckham when it was attacked, it said. London-based Zodiac Maritime, which is controlled by Israeli magnate Aalofa whose father Sami was Israel's most famous shipowner, said the ship was sailing under the control of its crew and own power to a safe location with a U.S. naval escort. According to Refinitiv Ship Tracking, the medium-sized tanker was headed for Fujaira, a bunkering port and oil terminal in the United Arab Emirates, from Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. The British government is under pressure to show it is serious about standing up to Iran over the death of a British crew member during the drone attack on the Israeli-managed MV Mercer Street last week. General Sir Nick Carter, the Chief of the Defence Staff, told the BBC on Wednesday morning that, we've got to restore deterrence. But if anyone is banging the drums of war, they can stop now. For neither country can afford a like-for-like -like response that would jeopardise delicate mutual interests. For Britain, there are dual national prisoners. British diplomats appear to feel a deal to release of Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, Anousha Ashori, and Maura Tarbaz is closer than ever. 
Iran for its part has signaled it wants to get U.S. sanctions lifted, which implies both countries returning to compliance with the JCPOA nuclear deal. With an economic crisis spiraling out of control, it cannot afford to sink those talks now. Those tricky nuclear talks are also a priority for Britain, which has been desperately urging Washington and Tehran to get back on board with the deal ever since Donald Trump ripped it up in 2018. The change of government in Tehran makes those considerations more delicate than ever. Ibrahim Raisi was inaugurated by Ali Khamenei, Supreme Leader, on Tuesday and will finally be sworn in by Iran's parliament, and present his picks for cabinet ministers, on Thursday. No one yet knows exactly what his foreign policy will look like. Was the fatal attack on the MV Mercer Street a sign of a more maximalist and confrontational foreign policy for the coming four years, or just an unfortunate miscalculation? That's a question British ministers and diplomats will want a clear answer to before they take any action that could unnecessarily poison relations with the new president. So what options does that leave? On Wednesday morning, Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary, announced that Britain, Romania, and Liberia had sent a letter to the Chairman of the United Nations Security Council. The UK will raise the issue at a UNSC session on Friday. That is a significant step up from tough rhetoric or sternly warded statements of concern. But it is well short of a kinetic response. Even a high-level cyber attack, which would clearly be attributable to the UK, is unlikely, said Anasay Tabritsi, a senior research fellow at the Royal United Services Institute. There is going to be a very delicate and very difficult balance between being tough and singling out those responsible but also keeping the door open to ensure that if there is an opportunity to address all the issues, this is going to happen, so that it is not the UK that shuts the door to the possibility of dialogue and compromise, and resolution of questions from the nuclear issue to the prisoners, she said. That would be consistent with the UK response to similar incidents. When Iran seized the Stenner Impero, a British flag tanker in 2019, Britain was vocally critical but allowed the case to be resolved diplomatically. When a British soldier was killed in a rocket attack on a US base in Iraq by an Iranian-backed militia in March 2020, the UK was content to voice support for a retaliatory US airstrike on the group's arms stores, but took no direct action against Iran of its own. And when Russia killed one woman and nearly fatally poisoned three others in the Salisbury Novichok attack in 2018, Britain rallied its allies and got 153 Russian diplomats and suspected spies kicked out of capitals around the world. But it did not resort to a revenge chemical murder. Much is still unclear about both the attack on the MV Mercer Street. But the most likely explanation is that it was latest blow in an Israeli-Iranian shadow war of non-attributable attacks, including on shipping, that has intensified in the past six months. 
The deaths of British and Romanian crew members were probably unintentional, although that does not excuse the recklessness of firing drones at the living quarters of a civilian ship. Britain and Romania will seek to extract a high diplomatic price for such recklessness, one punishing enough to make Mr. Raisi's government think again about launching similar attacks. For all the reasons listed above, British officials will be allergic to getting involved in a shadow war of their own. This is Misty101.com podcast. Visit www.misty101.com for great offers, read reviews and blogs, free shipping and great service, subscribe and get notification of new offers and discounts. Now back to our story. Returning to his tent, walking along in the silence, the boy had no regrets. If he died tomorrow, it would be because God was not willing to change the future. He would at least have died after crossing the street, after having worked in a crystal shop, and after having known the silence of the desert and Fatima's eyes. Suddenly he heard a thundering sound, and he was thrown to the ground by a wind such as he had never known. The area was swirling in dust so intense that it hid the moon from view. Before him was an enormous white horse, rearing over him with a frightening scream. When the blinding dust had settled a bit, the boy trembled at what he saw. Astride the animal was a horseman dressed completely in black, with a falcon perched on his left shoulder. He wore a turban, and his entire face, except for his eyes, was covered with a black kerchief. The strange horseman drew an enormous curved sword from a scabbard mounted on his saddle. The steel of its blade glittered in the light of the moon. Who dares to read the meaning of the flight of the hawks? He demanded so loudly that his words seemed to echo through the fifty thousand palm trees of Al-Fayyum. It is I who dare to do so, said the boy, and he lowered his head to receive a blow from the sword. Many lives will be saved because I was able to see through to the soul of the world. The sword didn't fall. Instead, the stranger lowered it slowly until the point touched the boy's forehead. It drew a droplet of blood. Why did you read the flight of the birds? The stranger asked more quietly. I read only what the birds wanted to tell me. They wanted to save the oasis. The stranger withdrew the sword from the boy's forehead, and the boy felt immensely relieved. Be careful with your prognostications, said the stranger. When something is written, there is no way to change it. All I saw was an army, said the boy. I didn't see the outcome of the battle. The stranger seemed satisfied with the answer, but he kept the sword in his hand. What is a stranger doing in this strange land? I'm following my destiny. It's not something you would understand. The stranger placed his sword in its scabbard, and the boy relaxed. I had to test your courage, the stranger said. Courage is the quality most essential to understanding the language of the world. You must not let up, even after having come so far. You must love the desert, but never trust it completely. Because the desert tests all men. It challenges every step and kills those who become distracted. What he said reminded the boy of the old king. If the warriors come here, 
and your head is still on your shoulders at sunset, come and find me, said the stranger. The same hand that had brandished the sword now held a whip. The horse reared again, raising a cloud of dust. Where do you live? shouted the boy as the horseman rode away. The hand with the whip pointed to the south. The boy had met the alchemist. Next morning, there were two thousand armed men scattered throughout the palm trees at Al-Fayyum. Before the sun had reached its high point, five hundred tribesmen appeared on the horizon. The mounted troops entered the oasis from the north. It appeared to be a peaceful expedition, but they all carried arms hidden in their robes. When they reached the white tent at the center of Al-Fayyum, they withdrew their scimitars and rifles, and they attacked an empty tent. The men of the oasis surrounded the horsemen from the desert, and within half an hour all but one of the intruders were dead. The tribesman spared was the commander of the battalion. That afternoon he was brought before the tribal chieftains, who asked him why he had violated the tradition. The commander said that his men had been starving and thirsty, exhausted from many days of battle, and had decided to take the oasis so as to be able to return to the war. The tribal chieftain said that he felt sorry for the tribesmen, but that the tradition was sacred. He condemned the commander to death without honor. Rather than being killed by a blade or a bullet, he was hanged from a palm tree where his body twisted in the desert wind. The tribal chieftain called for the boy and presented him with fifty pieces of gold. He asked the boy to become the counselor of the oasis. When the sun had set and the first stars made their appearance, the boy started to walk to the south. He eventually sighted a single tent, and a group of Arabs passing by told the boy that it was a place inhabited by genies. But the boy sat down and waited. Not until the moon was high did the alchemist ride into view. Dismounting from his horse, he signaled that the boy should enter the tent with him. It was a tent like many at the oasis. The boy looked around for the ovens and other apparatus used in alchemy, but saw none. There were only some books in a pile, a small cooking stove, and carpets covered with mysterious designs. Why did you want to see me? the boy asked. Because of the omens, the alchemist answered. The wind told me you would be coming, and that you would need help. It's not I the wind spoke about. It's the other foreigner, the Englishman. He's the one that's looking for you. He has other things to do first. But he's on the right track. He has begun to try to understand the desert. And what about me? When a person really desires something, all the universe conspires to help that person to realize his dream, said the alchemist, echoing the words of the old king. So are you going to instruct me? No. You already know all you need to know. I am only going to point you in the direction of your treasure. But I've already found my treasure. I have a camel, I have my money from the crystal shop, and I have fifty gold pieces. In my own country I would be a rich man. But none of that is from the pyramids, said the alchemist. I also have Fatima. She is a treasure greater than anything else I have won. She wasn't found at the pyramids either. Tomorrow, sell your camel and buy a horse. Camels are traitorous. 
They walk thousands of paces and never seem to tire. Then suddenly they kneel and die. But horses tire bit by bit. You always know how much you can ask of them, and when it is that they are about to die. The following night, the boy appeared at the alchemist's tent with a horse. The alchemist was ready, and he mounted his own steed and placed his falcon on his left shoulder. He said to the boy, Show me where there is life out in the desert. Only those who can see such signs of life are able to find treasure. They began to ride out over the sands with the moon lighting their way. They reached the rocky place where the boy had seen the hawks in the sky, but now there was only silence and wind. I don't know how to find life in the desert, the boy said. I know that there is life here, but I don't know where to look. Life attracts life, the alchemist answered. And then the boy understood. He loosened the reins on his horse, who galloped forward over the rocks and sand. The alchemist followed as the boy's horse ran for almost half an hour. Suddenly, for no apparent reason, the boy's horse began to slow. There's life here, the boy said to the alchemist. I don't know the language of the desert, but my horse knows the language of life. They dismounted, and the alchemist said nothing. Advancing slowly, they searched among the stones. The alchemist stopped abruptly and bent to the ground. There was a hole there among the stones. He put his hand into the hole, and then his entire arm up to his shoulder. Then, with a motion that startled the boy, he withdrew his arm and leapt to his feet. In his hand, he grasped a snake by the tail. The snake fought frantically, making hissing sounds that shattered the silence of the desert. It was a cobra, whose venom could kill a person in minutes. The boy watched as the alchemist went to his horse and withdrew a scimitar. With its blade, he drew a circle in the sand, and then he placed the snake within it. The serpent relaxed immediately. He won't leave the circle, said the alchemist. You found life in the desert, the omen that I needed. Why was that so important? Because the pyramids are surrounded by the desert. I'm going to guide you across the desert myself. I want to stay at the oasis, the boy said. I found Fatima, and as far as I'm concerned, she's worth more than treasure. Fatima is a woman of the desert, said the alchemist. She knows that men have to go away in order to return. And she already has her treasure. It's you. Now she expects that you will find what it is you're looking for. Well, what if I decide to stay? Let me tell you what will happen. You'll be the counsellor of the oasis. You have enough gold to buy many sheep and many camels. You'll marry Fatima, and you'll both be happy for a year. Sometime during the second year, you'll remember about the treasure. The omens will begin insistently to speak of it, and you'll try to ignore them. During the third year, the omens will continue to speak of your treasure and your destiny. You'll walk around night after night at the oasis, and Fatima will be unhappy because she'll feel it was she who interrupted your quest. Sometime during the fourth year, the omens will abandon you because you've stopped listening to them. The tribal chieftains will see that, and you'll be dismissed from your position as counsellor. But by then you'll be a rich merchant, with many camels and a great deal of merchandise. 
You'll spend the rest of your days knowing that you didn't pursue your destiny and that now it's too late. You must understand that love never keeps a man from pursuing his destiny. If he abandons that pursuit, it's because it wasn't true love, the love that speaks the language of the world. The alchemist erased the circle in the sand and the snake slithered away among the rocks. I'm going with you, the boy said, and he immediately felt peace in his heart. The boy spent a sleepless night. Two hours before dawn, he awoke one of the boys who slept in his tent and asked him to show him where Fatima lived. They went to her tent, and the boy gave his friend enough gold to buy a sheep. Then he asked his friend to go into the tent where Fatima was sleeping and to awaken her and tell her that he was waiting outside. The young Arab did as he was asked and was given enough gold to buy yet another sheep. Now leave us alone, said the boy to the young Arab. The Arab returned to his tent to sleep, proud to have helped the counselor of the oasis and happy at having enough money to buy himself some sheep. Fatima appeared at the entrance to the tent. The two walked out among the palms. The boy knew that it was a violation of the tradition, but that didn't matter to him now. I'm going away, he said, and I want you to know that I'm coming back. I love you because... Don't say anything, Fatima interrupted. One is loved because one is loved. No reason is needed for loving. But the boy continued. I had a dream and I met with a king. I sold crystal and crossed the desert. And because the tribes declared war, I sought the alchemist. So I love you because the entire universe conspired to help me find you. The two embraced. It was the first time either had touched the other. I'll be back, the boy said. Before this, I had always looked to the desert with longing, said Fatima. Now it will be with hope. My father went away one day, but he returned to my mother, and he has always come back since then. They said nothing else. They walked a bit farther among the palms, and then the boy left her at the entrance to her tent. I'll return, just as your father came back to your mother, he said. He saw that Fatima's eyes were filled with tears. You're crying. I'm a woman of the desert, she said, averting her face. But above all, I'm a woman. From that day on, Fatima would look to the desert every day and would try to guess which star the boy was following in search of his treasure. She would have to send her kisses on the wind, hoping that the wind would touch the boy's face and would tell him she was alive, that she was waiting for him, a woman awaiting a courageous man in search of his treasure. The alchemist and the boy began to ride across the sands of the desert. The alchemist rode in front with the falcon on his shoulder. The bird knew the language of the desert well, and whenever they stopped, he flew off in search of game. On the first day, he returned with a rabbit, and on the second with two birds. At night, they spread their sleeping gear and kept their fires hidden. The desert nights were cold and were becoming darker and darker as the phases of the moon passed. 
they went on for a week, speaking only of the precautions they needed to follow in order to avoid the battles between the tribes. The war continued, and at times the wind carried the sweet sickly smell of blood. Battles had been fought nearby, and the wind reminded the boy that there was the language of omens, always ready to show him what his eyes had failed to observe. On the seventh day, the alchemist decided to make camp earlier than usual. The falcon flew off to find game, and the alchemist offered his water container to the boy. You are almost at the end of your journey, said the alchemist. I congratulate you for having pursued your destiny. And you told me nothing along the way, said the boy. I thought you were going to teach me some of the things you know. A while ago I rode through the desert with a man who had books on alchemy, but I wasn't able to learn anything from them. There is only one way to learn, the alchemist answered, through action. Everything you need to know you have learned through your journey. You need to learn only one thing more. The boy wanted to know what this was, but the alchemist was searching the horizon looking for his falcon. Why are you called the alchemist? the boy asked. Because that's what I am. And what went wrong when other alchemists tried to make gold and were unable to do so? They were looking only for gold, his companion answered. They were seeking the treasure of their destiny without wanting actually to live out that destiny. What is it that I still need to know? the boy asked. But the alchemist continued to look to the horizon. After several seconds, he said, Listen to your heart. It knows all things because it came from the soul of the world and it will one day return there. They crossed the desert for another two days in silence. The alchemist had become much more cautious because they were approaching the area where the most violent battles were being waged. As they moved along, the boy tried to listen to his heart. It was not easy to do, in earlier times, his heart had always been ready to tell its story, but lately that wasn't true. There had been times when his heart spent hours telling of its sadness, and at other times it became so emotional over the desert sunrise that the boy had to hide his tears. His heart beat fastest when it spoke to the boy of treasure, and more slowly when the boy stared entranced at the endless horizons of the desert. But his heart was never quiet, even when the boy and the alchemist had fallen into silence. Why do we have to listen to our hearts? The boy asked when they had made camp that day. Because wherever your heart is, that is where you'll find your treasure. But my heart is agitated, the boy said. It has its dreams, it gets emotional, and it's become passionate over a woman of the desert. It asks things of me, and it keeps me from sleeping many nights when I'm thinking about her. Well, that's good. Your heart is alive. Keep listening to what it has to say. During the next three days, the two travellers passed by a number of armed tribesmen and saw others on the horizon. The boy's heart began to speak of fear. It told him stories it had heard from the soul of the world, stories of men who sought to find their treasure and never succeeded. Sometimes it frightened the boy with the idea that he might not find his treasure or that he might die there in the desert. At other times it told the boy that it was satisfied. It had found love and riches. My heart is a traitor, 
the boy said to the alchemist when they had paused to rest the horses. He doesn't want me to go on. That makes sense, the alchemist answered. Naturally, it's afraid that in pursuing your dream you might lose everything you've won. Well, then, why should I listen to my heart? Because you will never again be able to keep it quiet. Even if you pretend not to have heard what it tells you, it will always be there inside you, repeating to you what you're thinking about life and about the world. The boy continued to listen to his heart as they crossed the desert. He came to understand its dodges and tricks, and to accept it as it was. He lost his fear, and forgot about his need to go back to the oasis, because one afternoon his heart told him that it was happy. Even though I complain sometimes, it said, it's because I'm the heart of a person, and people's hearts are that way. People are afraid to pursue their most important dreams, because they feel that they don't deserve them, or that they'll be unable to achieve them. We, their hearts, become fearful just thinking of loved ones who go away forever, or of moments that could have been good but weren't, or of treasures that might have been found but were forever hidden in the sands. Because when these things happen, we suffer terribly. My heart is afraid that it will have to suffer, the boy told the alchemist one night as they looked up at the moonless sky. Tell your heart that the fear of suffering is worse than the suffering itself, and that no heart has ever suffered when it goes in search of its dreams, because every second of the search is a second's encounter with God and with eternity. Every second of the search is an encounter with God, the boy told his heart. When I have been truly searching for my treasure, every day has been luminous because I've known that every hour was a part of the dream that I should find it. When I have been truly searching for my treasure, I've discovered things along the way that I never would have seen had I not had the courage to try things that seemed impossible for a shepherd to achieve. So his heart was quiet for an entire afternoon. That night the boy slept deeply, and when he awoke, his heart began to tell him things that came from the soul of the world, it said that all people who are happy have God within them, and that happiness could be found in a grain of sand from the desert, because a grain of sand is a moment of creation, and the universe has taken millions of years to create it. Everyone on earth has a treasure that awaits him, his heart said. We, the people's hearts, seldom say much about these treasures because people no longer want to go in search of them. We speak of them only to children. Later, we simply let life proceed in its own direction, towards its own fate. But unfortunately, very few follow the path laid out for them, the path to their destinies and to happiness. Most people see the world as a threatening place, and because they do, the world turns out indeed to be a threatening place. So we, their hearts, speak more and more softly. We never stop speaking out, but we begin to hope that our words won't be heard. We don't want people to suffer because they don't follow their hearts. Why don't people's hearts tell them to continue to follow their dreams? The boy asked the alchemist. Because that's what makes a heart suffer most, and hearts don't like to suffer. From then on, the boy understood his heart. He asked it please never to stop speaking to him. 
He asked that when he wandered far from his dreams, his heart press him and sound the alarm. The boy swore that every time he heard the alarm, he would heed its message. That night he told all of this to the alchemist. And the alchemist understood that the boy's heart had returned to the soul of the world. So what should I do now? the boy asked. Continue in the direction of the pyramids, said the alchemist, and continue to pay heed to the omens. Your heart is still capable of showing you where the treasure is. Is that the one thing I still needed to know? No, the alchemist answered. What you still need to know is this. Before a dream is realized, the soul of the world tests everything that was learned along the way. It does this not because it is evil, but so that we can, in addition to realizing our dreams, Master the lessons we've learned as we've moved towards that dream. That's the point at which most people give up. It's the point at which, as we say in the language of the desert, one dies of thirst just when the palm trees have appeared on the horizon. Every search begins with beginner's luck, and every search ends with the victor being severely tested. The boy remembered an old proverb from his country. It said that the darkest hour of the night came just before the dawn. On the following day, the first clear sign of danger appeared. Three armed tribesmen approached and asked what the boy and the alchemist were doing there. I'm hunting with my falcon, the alchemist answered. We're going to have to search you to see whether you're armed, one of the tribesmen said. The alchemist dismounted slowly and the boy did the same. Why are you carrying money? asked the tribesman when he had searched the boy's bag. I need it to get to the pyramids, the boy said. The tribesman who was searching the alchemist's belongings found a small crystal flask filled with a liquid and a yellow glass egg that was slightly larger than a chicken's egg. What are these things? he asked. That's the philosopher's stone and the elixir of life. It's the masterwork of the alchemists. Whoever swallows that elixir will never be sick again, and a fragment from that stone turns any metal into gold. The Arabs laughed at him, and the alchemist laughed along. They thought his answer was amusing, and they allowed the boy and the alchemist to proceed with all of their belongings. Are you mad? The boy asked the alchemist when they had moved on. What did you do that for? To show you one of life's simple lessons, the alchemist answered. When you possess great treasures within you and try to tell others of them, seldom are you believed. They continued across the desert. With every day that passed, the boy's heart became more and more silent. It no longer wanted to know about the things of the past or future. It was content simply to contemplate the desert and to drink with the boy from the soul of the world. The boy and his heart had become friends, and neither was capable now of betraying the other. One afternoon they passed by the encampment of one of the tribes. At each corner of the camp were Arabs dressed in beautiful white robes with arms at the ready. The men were smoking their hookahs and trading stories from the battlefield. No one paid any attention to the two travellers. There's no danger, the boy said when they had moved on past the encampment. The alchemist sounded angry. Trust in your heart, but never forget that you're in the desert. When men are at war with one another, the soul of the world can hear the screams of battle. No one fails to suffer the consequences of everything under the sun. All things are one, the boy thought. And then, as if the desert wanted to demonstrate that the alchemist was right, two horsemen appeared from behind the travellers. You can't go any further, one of them said. 
You're in the area where the tribes are at war. I'm not going very far, the alchemist answered, looking straight into the eyes of the horsemen. They were silent for a moment, and then agreed that the boy and the alchemist could move along. The boy watched the exchange with fascination. You dominated those horsemen with the way you looked at them, he said. Your eyes show the strength of your soul, answered the alchemist. That's true, the boy thought. He had noticed that in the midst of the multitude of armed men back at the encampment, there had been one who stared fixedly at the two. He had been so far away that his face wasn't even visible. But the boy was certain that he had been looking at them. Finally, when they had crossed the mountain range that extended along the entire horizon, the alchemist said that they were only two days from the pyramids. If we're going to go our separate ways soon, the boy said, then teach me about alchemy. You already know about alchemy. It's about penetrating to the soul of the world and discovering the treasure that has been reserved for you. No, that's not what I mean. I'm talking about transforming lead into gold. The alchemist fell as silent as the desert and answered the boy only after they had stopped to eat. Everything in the universe evolved, he said. And for wise men, gold is the metal that evolved the furthest. Don't ask me why. I don't know why. I just know that the tradition is always right. Men have never understood the words of the wise. So gold, instead of being seen as a symbol of evolution, became the basis for conflict. Those who were interested only in gold forgot that lead, copper, and iron have their own destinies to fulfill. And anyone who interferes with the destiny of another thing never will discover his own. We are asking for your support. You can make your donations on our website www.misty101.com on podcast page. We hope that you have enjoyed the show. We thank you for being with us and your support. Goodbye till next time.